The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. And we're live. Yay, live. Um, well, Ben, welcome to In Lieu of Fun, where because of the coronavirus, we sit at home and don't go and see our friends or have fun. And so in lieu of fun, we bring our friends to you via the magic of the internet um, in what some have described as a mix between improv, Wikipedia, and a dinner party. And I would also, as, the, as this uh, endeavor marches on, I would also hasten to say um, a, the, like a USO show. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you're like Bob Hope and I'm like, I don't know who was in the USO that was a woman. Um, I'll also be Bob Hope. <laughs> yeah, as, as, as long as I don't have to be Al Franken. Oh God, that's right. Wasn't that in an Al Frank in a USO show? Yes, it totally was. Um, oh, uh, that is our guest. Um, ah. um, do you want me hang to Hang on, it? I got it. Okay. Um, so anyways, yeah, um, we're like the USO. Um, and I am, uh, I would love it if you could um, introduce our guest. I will introduce our guest as soon as she successfully manages to get on the Zoom link. Hang on just a second. Uh, I am texting her the, uh, uh, the URL. She's having a little bit of trouble getting in. Um, there we go. All right, now let's see if she shows up. So Corey Shockey is one of... Uh, a uh, one of uh, my dearest friends in Washington. She, uh, I met her when she was, I guess, right after she left the Bush administration's NSC. She was then at State Department for a while. She'd been a Defense Department official, and she uh, later was the Defense and Foreign Policy. Uh, 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 voice of the John McCain campaign. Um, and she's been at the Hoover Institution and IISS in London for the last several years and is recently took over as the uh, head of uh, foreign policy, foreign and defense policy at the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, she is also, I don't know just quite how to say this because like it's like in a Mike Pesca kind of way. We're talking about you behind your back, Corey. Yeah. Into the show. <laughs> so like, like Mike I Pesca clearly was... came in right at the crucial moment where Ben was about to say something terrible about me. And no, I can not reclaim it. I was going to say something lovely about you. But some people think. <laughs> I was going to say something lovely about you, except that um, when, like, for some reason, when Mike Pesca says it about himself, uh, it comes off. Uh, differently than it will come off, but I mean it exactly the way Mike Pesca meant it yesterday. Corey can find the bright side of any situation, and um, <laughs> like in 
you know, in the post-apocalyptic hellscape of a coronavirus infested America led by Donald Trump, she can tell us what the ray of sunshine <laughs> is. Um, uh, so that is, uh, and I think the only real way to appreciate, Corey also gave me the best professional advice I have ever received from anybody uh, ever. And um, which I pass on to all Brookings interns who come to me for advice. Um, and so with that, I'll just say, uh, Corey, uh, we're not allowed to have fun anymore. Uh, <laughs> but in lieu of fun, it is super good to have you with us. It is such a pleasure to be talking with the two of you and to be having a glass of wine in your virtual company. Yes, it is lovely. So tell us the bright side, Trump in, uh, I was going to say Trump infested coronavirus led America, but the other way around, we're living in a, a, a out of control pandemic and our fearless leader is Donald Trump. What is the bright side? We have a federal system where governors are in control of most of what needs doing to preserve people's health and safety would be my first silver lining. My second silver lining would be just how vigorous civil society is as a factor in American life now and always. Third civil, uh, my third silver lining would be it's really beautiful to see how Americans are looking after each other and the emergence of practices like red, yellow, and green paper in the windows of people who are elderly or immunocompromised so that we know um, when people need help and can offer it. Even little stuff like the construction crew working across the street is considerate enough that when I tell them, but I have to do my job too. Could you please not saw bricks between 2.30 and 4.30? They're actually nice enough to do that. Yeah, I actually had a very a moment in college when I went on a Saturday morning and there was a construction crew outside my thing and I went outside and my roommates thought I was insane. I just said, do you mind not doing that right now? Like, do you know what I mean? You didn't call the cops or anything? I was like, no, they're like reasonable people. They're just sawing stuff they can do it down the street. And so like, yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> I think that's right. Um, and you know the volu the voluntary way people have been responsive to the stay-at-home orders um, is actually pretty amazing for a country full of crazy people that are barely governable. It's actually really beautiful to see how well people are doing things that are for the common good. All right, so I want to ask like we were talking yesterday with Virginia Heffernan and Mike Pesca about kind of how optimistic they're capable of being, how, you know, how cheerful their dispositions. Virginia has been reading a lot of plague literature. She has been um, uh, 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 thinking about whether maybe we should all be, uh, uh, you know, this is really about the triumph of the human gut and the sort of microbiome. And Pesca just seems to wake up with a smile on his face every day. Like his, he can be kind of angry sometimes on his, on his monologues, but his demeanor seems like he's actually waking up every morning and having a pretty good time with life. How's your mood? 
well, crazily enough, I feel like I am ideally suited to being cloistered, right? Because this is sort of my ideal work setting. I can read and write uninterrupted. Um, I can't be forced to do meetings that aren't a good use of my time. Uh, I can do a lot of stuff by email. Uh, and I actually crave solitude. Um, so, and I have a good excuse to run in the sunshine in the middle of the day. Uh, so, so uh, I'm holding up reasonably well. One thing I did notice though, is that I had started reading the third and final of Hilary Mantel's magnificent trilogy about Thomas Cromwell. And I actually had to put it aside because the undercurrent of dread, you know, he's an older man at the height of his power and influence, and he's making the decisions that are going to lead to his execution and reflecting on them. And it just added too much enervation. Uh, so I'm on a steady diet of happy endings um, because because I really can't take Thomas Cromwell's decline right now. Okay, but the worst thing that's going on for you in coronavirus is that you're deferring reading Hillary Mantel for a while? It, it is a great blessing uh, <laughs> that that's the extent of my experience of it. That and the guilt dragging along behind me like a string of tin cans about how much that needs doing in the country that we haven't done. Uh, and that if we had done, 16,000 Americans might not be dead now. Yeah, absolutely. I also think that like what you talk about, about this idea of like, yeah, the worst thing that is like, this is like these small things that are going on for me. I was thinking how much I have like, stockpiled all this like kind of gourmet food or things that are in my apartment that we left our apartment four weeks ago and like I was like man I should have brought my preserved lemons what a what a instantly I'm like wow Kate get some freaking perspective <laughs> you have time to think about preserved lemons it's like a really it's actually just a very zen like opportunity to kind of grasp the important things in life so I'm having the, the same realization when I read about the um, anxiety that school children have if they're from poorer families and they're being uh, required to do video meetings that show their home circumstances to all of their classmates and or the number of kids who don't have internet connections or don't have three computers so everybody in the family could be working at the same time. Or the people who are in domestic violence situations. Yes, oh trapped God. with somebody who's a danger to them. It's such a, it's such a reminder of the need to take better care of each other. Yeah. All right, so if you wanna get in on the conversation, uh, we are being troll bombed again today. So uh, uh, feel free to, it, to demonstrate that you are a real person in the Q&A and have an actual question for Corey Shockey rather than uh, just accusing her of being a Jew, which by the way, she is not. Um, and, um, 
uh, and uh, uh, feel free to leave a question and we will uh, rapture you into the conversation uh, uh, <laughs> magically. Um, uh, what a perfect thing to say as we approach, approach. as we, yeah. Yes, uh, apparently, apparently you have fans that say they would let you, they would, they would take you in. Yes, Maggie Feldman Pilch says <laughs> it's also, uh, 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 you'd be welcome in the tribe. Um, oh, I'm very grateful for that, Maggie. Thank you, my friend. <laughs> so, um, uh, so feel free to uh, uh, come on into the conversation. Uh, I want to ask you, Corey, because uh, one of the things you are in your real life is a civ mil civ civilian military relations uh, analyst and pers uh, scholar and, uh, and thought leader. And so let's talk about the Teddy Roosevelt. Um, <laughs> like, I've heard a bunch of versions of how I should think about this, um, mm -hmm. but I want to hear your version. Is this a situation where a captain simply did the right thing, got removed, because the political echelon was behaving inappropriately, uh, or is there a little bit more to it in the sense that there was a, a kind of element of uh, of going or semi-going public in the face of the chain of command that may have been the right thing to do, but also may justify his removal at the same time? Yeah, I do think it is more complicated than the first narrative that you laid out. And it's actually a really good, um, uh, a really good way to understand the responsibility at different echelons of command in the military. Because, uh, you know, every commander has to make a decision about whether they persevere to accomplish their mission when the losses of their personnel begin to mount, right? Historically, at about 25 to 30% casualties, most military units break and are not combat effective. Hmm. Uh, and I think that- Is that total or, I mean, so that's total, like that's like if ever, like once you've hit that number of total like casualties. Yeah, I mean, if you think about uh, why certain military units from the Civil War are so highly lauded by other soldiers, it's keeping combat capability amidst enormous attrition. Hmm. Uh, I worked for a really great American, an army general by the name of Barry McCaffrey, and he once told me that there's nothing so democratic as persuading soldiers to take a hill, right? Because they actually have to keep walking towards fire. Um, and uh, what I think, what it looks to me like what's going on on the Teddy Roosevelt was that they were, at, the captain was doing what was good for his men and women and echelons above him made a different judgment, made a judgment that even the, though what they were experiencing was extraordinarily dangerous, that the mission was still more important. 
and that they didn't want to take one of the 10 aircraft carriers in the American Armada that was headed to uh, the, the Western Pacific out of the game at a time where America's adversaries might be tempted to try and uh, invade an ally, challenge the rule of law. Um, that's a normal tension between a battle commander and a higher headquarters. And so, so that's a perfectly normal sort of friction. Where this becomes abnormal is the comportment of the acting secretary of the Navy. Um, yeah, so, let's, so let's talk about that. I mean, he, he doesn't just remove the guy, he shows up on his ship and gives a, uh, a kind of attack on him uh, speech. How do, you, how do you understand his behavior in that moment? Well, I think there are several suboptimal things going on here. <laughs> the first is, uh, you know, fair enough if he felt the need to relieve the commander of the carrier, but there are better and ways, worse ways to do that. And a guy who has engendered that amount of loyalty in the people he's commanding the Navy might still have good uses for him. And so instead of flamboyantly publicly removing him, quietly pulling him back to Washington and telling him, you know, a year from now, there's going to be another command opportunity for you. But in the moment, we need somebody who's going to demand more of the crew than you were demanding. Right? That would be a graceful way to do that. That is, of course, not the way the acting secretary of the Navy did it. Um, and the things he said about the commander were outrageous. Um, and, you know, he, he's the acting secretary of the Navy seemed not to understand that uh, most sailors distrust the suits at the top of the organization. And they're much more comfortable with the uniforms that they have experience with day to day. And you can hear that in, in commentary by the sailors of the Teddy Roosevelt in the audio of the speech that this acting secretary of the Navy was giving. It's just terrible leadership. And in an institution that runs on leadership to have flown out there. By the way, as Dr. Tomorrowit has pointed out, how many sailors from the Teddy Roosevelt could have been treated and safely housed on the quarter million dollars that the acting secretary of the Navy spent to fly out to talk over a PA system to the sailors of the Teddy Roosevelt? Um, and, uh, you know, he just kept making it worse and kept making it worse. And so I'm really pleased that he was relieved. I think it sends the right kind of message to the women and men of the American Navy. Okay. Just to be, can someone, I know I haven't, I'm like, this is really bad, but what happened on <laughs> the USS Teddy <laughs> Roosevelt? Like, I'm like quickly trying to Google this um, and I'm not quite, it, it feels more complicated than it immediate, but like, 
I'm getting I'll be happy to answer that question. Kate. Oh, please do. So what happened was there was concern about a possible outbreak of the coronavirus on an aircraft carrier. Oh, okay. Which has 4,000 people aboard it living in very close quarters where there's no possibility of social distancing. Right. The commander of the Teddy Roosevelt, um, after some back and forth with the leadership, sent to a wide, to about 40 recipients, an anguish, heartfelt letter saying that he wasn't getting the support that the women and men of the Roosevelt needed. And he had to know when he did that, he was gonna be relieved, right? Anybody with any experience in the Navy would know they would be relieved over that. And it felt worth it to him. So when he was relieved by the acting secretary of the Navy, um, he was cheered off the ship by his sailors. Yeah, cool. And the Navy subsequently has done what he asked them to do, which is take the ship out of commission, quarantine people and get them treatment. And the acting secretary of the Navy didn't just relieve him, he wrote a long letter that he widely circulated, basically calling him a coward for not persevering in the mission. And then he flew to the Teddy Roosevelt and actually called him a coward, said he was either naive or stupid to have not expected his letter to leak proving that the acting secretary of the Navy, talking to 4,000 people, all of whom had cell phones and would be recording this, was either naive or stupid, stupid. to think that people loyal to their commander wouldn't stand up for him. The secretary of defense made him apologize and then relieved him. And that because there was an outcry in Congress, there was an outcry from the Navy community, about what the hell kind of leadership is this? So who's in charge of the boat now? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I was keeping track as you were talking, Corey. I'm like, okay, first guy's relieved, second guy's relieved, now who's in charge? <laughs> the commander of an aircraft carrier is, t is always um, somebody who flies airplanes, not somebody who sails ships. Yeah. Because the the hardest piece of is landing a carrier off an airplane from an aircraft carrier. <laughs> exactly. That's lurching on an open sea. Yeah. But the aircraft commander's boss is also aboard the carrier, the task force commander. Got it. Um, and that admiral took over command. Cool. Thank you. So sorry, we have for a the, sorry for the, the explainer need. No, no it's wonderful <laughs> that you care to understand it thrills me. <laughs> so we have a question from an anonymous attendee and we don't bring anonymous attendees on to speak because then they turn out to uh, be trolls. But the question is an interesting one. Uh, person writes, quote, super cool to realize right now that our whole government has been just on the honor system for centuries. Uh, Kumail <laughs> Nagiani on Twitter. Who's this, the per who's the just person, discovering legal realism, apparently. Person, <laughs> person writes, this strikes me as insightful, and I'd suggest that applies more or less universally. Any reflections on that? 
I would love to hear what both of you have to say. Actually, I was just going to say that. I want to hear what Kate and Ben have to say about this. Ben, you start. Well, you first. Oh, no, God. you first. So I think, I, I think there's a lot of truth to it. So look, there are, um, there are a lot of laws and there's a certain amount of constitutional uh, fabric, the most relevant of which is structural separation of powers. Um, but at the end of the day, the amount of discretion vested in executive officers, particularly the higher you go, is so extraordinary. And by the way, that's not a creature of the American system. That's, a, that's an inherent feature of uh, executive authority, which is, you know, if you say the, the executive has a right to, has the authority to hold this glass, you're assuming hold means decide to hold on to, not also has the authority to throw it against a wall or drop it. But that's inherent in the grant of authority to hold, right, is the grant of authority not to hold or to throw or to crush against your forehead. And, you know, we don't spend enough time, but if we did spend enough time, we still couldn't spend enough time because it's undoable. The human imagination is vast. Thinking about all the different ways to, for a crazy person or a, a, a stupid person to uh, interpret or misinterpret or abuse grants of authority. And so I, I think at some level, there is an honor system and it's called in the constitution, the take care clause or the oath of office, right? Where we basically have these catch-alls that says, okay, the president has to take care that the laws are faithfully executed. He's got to swear an oath. And by the way, all the other executive officers swear an oath too, to kind of do their best. And that's where, that's the formal articulation of what this questioner refers to as the honor system. It's real and you don't see it as long as we're talking about a window of human behavior that is from kind of Bill Clinton to George H.W. Bush to Barack Obama to George W. Bush, all of whom are basically psychologically normal individuals. They have their <laughs> flaws, but they're, you know, they're, they're well short of deranged or demonic or, um, or, you know, disordered well, the ways personality. In, the, in which they are predictable and, and, and like, and predictable. I think that's like really, like they're self-serving power hungry people. That's why they ran for office. I mean, like, like, like it selects for a kind of person with a very healthy ego. But, you know, if you listen to George W. Bush. What has George W. Bush done since take, since leaving office? He's really good at painting now. He's spent time painting pictures of people who died under his orders, right? That is a, uh, a really psychologically healthy uh, uh, response for a president who, who ordered the Iraq war. The thing I like uh, best. Yeah, I like love that. I think that's but, one of the best, like. I mean, I think it's like, like, can you, you can't possibly imagine Donald Trump doing that. 
And so I, I guess I, I think, yeah, of course there's an honor system and the only ultimate, there's only ultimately two real checks on the honor system. One is the impeachment process and the other is elections. One of them failed us and the other, you know, uh, bring it on because that's the one we got. What do you all think? Um, I'm just kind of, I'm like, sorry, I kind of telescope all the way out on this type of thing. And so like right now I'm thinking about your, your idea of the oath, which was the, what was the specific, the take care clause? Yeah. That was, so that's like the take care clause like applies to government. And I would say the Hippocratic oath applies to doctors. And I would say that you have like reasonable person standards that are like it, like in, effectuated by, by legal systems. Um, the thing is, is that all of those things are actually very subjective determinations that are masked as like objective determinations and that people have to make those um, thoughts. And we hope that what do no harm means to us is the same thing that me it means to the person who's uh, holding up that thing that take care means the same thing to us as it does to other people and the the that sameness is like the idea that we're all bound by the same social norm or if you want to be super kind of uh go a little bit deeper about it like the same moral fabric or the same value structure but i would say social norms about like kind of like at a broad level about what is and is not appropriate in like a given situation um and like what the right thing and the wrong thing to do is um but i think that like that point is exactly right but i've seen but i think that there was a point that i realized that in college or right after college when my first couple of jobs where i was like oh these are just people pretending to be the adults in the same way that I'm pretending to be an adult. <laughs> like, they don't I don't, don't know anything more than I know. <laughs> like, um, and I think that like having like kind of, but it's the same kind of thing that we talked about yesterday with nihilism, which was kind of like, well, you get to that conclusion and the conclusion is, well, nihilism is boring. And so it's like, it's not very productive to say nobody has authority. You can't respect the authority. Everything falls apart. So you agree to do it because it keeps everything together and moving, even though it's not always um, in the direction that you want it. And I think that that honestly is the principles versus outcomes moment that we're having with our own government, which is like, okay, like if we can't agree on the outcomes and we can't agree on the principles, like that's where we're running, like where we're running into problems. Um, whereas I feel like at least before when we had kind of bipartisan clashes, that there were kind of certain things that we could agree on what the words meant, good governance or, you know, or, or fairness or transparency or truth like that there could be some type of agreement. And now that's kind of slowly fallen apart and both the outcomes of where those principles land, like is like people want two different things, but they can't even agree on the principles to begin with. Corey, so you served- one of the things I learned reading a really wonderful book called Unmaking the Presidency. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I know. Am I like sounding a little bit like I'm like parroting somebody else? <laughs> <laughs> it's a wonderful book. Thank you, um, it, It's just terrific. And I hadn't realized until I read the careful delineation by Susan Hennessy and Ben Wittes about all of the ways in which the president is traducing norms of behavior just how much those norms have been the guardrails of democracy in America. And, and 
I myself am mystified that President Trump, who had, who he and the people around him have been so ruthlessly creative in ways to use executive power uh, to and and to, to outright challenge long-standing constitutional practices like you can't use money for border enforcement that has been authorized and appropriated by the Congress for other defense purposes. It's so strange to me that somebody like Donald Trump who aspires to an imperial presidency is actually not exercising any of his existing normative or executive powers in the first crisis of his presidency and when over 16,000 Americans have already died. It's really shocking that he is retreating from the imperial presidency at precisely the moment when it would be most useful for the preservation of life and security for Americans. I can explain that. Actually. Please do. I, I, I think I can explain that. So the one thing the imperial presidency cannot relieve you of is accountability. Because- That's a nice point. If you hoard authority and you over time, whether you think of it as a usurpation by the executive or a ceding of the authority by Congress or both, and I think it's mostly the second category, um, but whatever it is, it makes it very clear who's responsible for outcomes. And um, so the current crisis puts Trump in a, in a very tricky position for him. He wants the trappings of all the authority, but in his lizard brain way, he knows that uh, Joe Biden is more popular than he is, that he's got to face an electorate in, uh, uh, in less than uh, eight months or seven months, and that we're having a 9-11 level of death every few days. Um, and so if you actually embrace the imperial presidency here and you become uh, Boris Johnson or, you know, I don't mean that in the sense of being sick, I mean it in the sense of having a state of emergency that really gives you a lot of authority, right? If you really do that, how are you going to not be accountable for the death toll at the end of the day. And so I think his equivocation is a reflection of he wants, he wants to enrobe himself in all this uh, apparent power, but he doesn't want the accountability that comes with the power. And so you end up with this very equivocal relationship with the authorities of his office, whereby he'll announce that he's invoking the Defense Production Act but he doesn't actually use the Defense Production Act, right? And he's he announces, uh, he, you know, that he can do all these things, but he doesn't actually do them. You know, it's so interesting that you raise that, Ben, because what I noticed about the president's comportment in office early on, and I haven't thought about this in a while, was that he was banking on his voters listening to what he said he was doing, not what he actually did. Um, and 
when he didn't follow through on all sorts of things that require actual orchestration of the levers of governance. But he was banking on American voters not doubling back to see what happened. And you're right, there's no way to avoid the accountability that comes with more than 16,000 dead Americans and the clear comparison to other governments that took action earlier, that behaved more responsibly, that flowed information and resources to where their population most needed it. All of those failures of the Trump administration, I think, are going to be unavoidable. So uh, we have a question from Maggie Feldman Pilch, who is the uh, 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 founding entrepreneurial guru of the NatSec Girl Squad, which, uh, by the way, is doing a whole lot of really cool programming uh, on uh, on Zoom and online while uh, we are all in our viral cocoons. Uh, Maggie, what's on your mind? Hello, my rainbow unicorn friend. Hello, and I have to say that, you know, I was doing what every um, good millennial Jew is doing right now, which is making sure that the house is still kosher while wearing my literal tiara of optimism. <laughs> the video doesn't work in webinar then. Um, <laughs> but this is great. This is such like a, a, it's the perfect way to end the day with you guys. So my question is something that I've asked you before, but I think it bears re-asking and is a really interesting conversation with the two other people on this show. And sometimes you mention this example of small or relatively small policy choices that can be made that trickle up, right, instead of trickling down. And you cite this example of when the US Embassy in Beijing, I think, made the decision. I love that yes. example. It's such a great example, right? Like they shared the daily pollution numbers um, and the rest sort of took care of itself. And so, especially with everything going on in the Navy right now and, and everything going on everywhere, I wonder, are there kind of specific little nuggets of whatever you want to call those little tweaks that you think would trickle up really well? It's a great oh, that's question. that's a great question. So, so let's... Uh, uh, Corey, what do you, what's a little nudge that you could would give to the coronavirus world? And Kate, what's a little nudge you would give to the coronavirus world? So I think I see a few really wonderful ones already. I mentioned the red, yellow, green paper in people's windows. The fact that every grocery store now has uh, early opening hours for seniors the people who have who are most at risk of of the consequences of coronavirus, um, for them to be able to shop without the rest of us. That um, what would I like to see that I'm not seeing? Uh, I would like to see. Um, actually, one more thing. I think I am seeing. I think boring competence is coming roaring back into fashion because, um, you know, uh, even the Wall Street Journal editorial page thinks the president's daily press conferences are bad for the country. 
and thinks that the president should instead let people who know what they're talking about provide reliable information to the American public for navigating these difficult, dangerous days. And when a Republican president has lost the Wall Street Journal editorial board, I feel like that's the start of a big change. And so the accountability that governors have tends to make them better executives for the country. So what I would love to see is a return to boring competence and a return to governors who've actually had to balance a budget every year, provide health care to the citizens of their states, resurge to be the national leaders of the country, because I think their expertise is much more suited to the job of running the country. That said, there's not one still in contention for 2020. Um, and, and so this is a long-term project. How about you, Kate? Do you have a, a small nudge to the system that, uh, uh, a policy nudge that would trickle up? Yeah, um, my policy nudge is that if you still have a job, you still spend money. Like you don't sit on your, on your, on your gold, and like a dragon on like smog on like his pile of gold coins, right? Like my parents <laughs> called me the other day and were like, this is so great. We're eating in all the time and we're not spending money. And I was like, screw you. You both have like <laughs> permit pensions and you're fine. Go out and spend money for crying out loud. I mean, like they do like, and I have a job and my partner has a job and it's going to keep paying at least for the foreseeable future. We ha I'm not gonna say we're reckless. We have savings already that are liquid and not in the stock market. So we're like safe-ish. Um, but like, I think that it's your responsibility to go out and give $20 tips to the bag guy handing you your bag. I through the could not <laughs> agree more. Well, we're here. I, <laughs> I could not agree more. I think that like, um, you know, the, the, the central bipartisan position is that the federal government is going to keep as many Americans whole as possible for the next several months. And I think the social contract of that is that all of us who are whole and, you know, the Brookings Institution, we're running remotely, right? I, my, Tammy and I are both employed. We should you know, not cut off our gym memberships, not cut off any of the things we're spending money on. Uh, we should keep paying contractors who do work for us, even though they're not. Um, and they're not doing the work with the idea that at some point they'll get made up or something will happen. But like, yes, even if it doesn't, you've preserved the industry for these people and kept if, them alive and kept them healthy and safe so they can come back at some point. Like. Right. I think that is so wonderful and so patriotic and a it, great example of civil society doing what Americans need to have done. But it's also just Keynesianism, right? If you believe and we see that, then no one's gonna listen to me. No, but if, <laughs> like if we're all Keynesians now, right, which we all seem to be, at least in these emergency situations, the idea is we should all be spending the money that we can spend. Keep right. people keep people in living their financial lives, and it's not charity. It's mm -hmm. actually 
it's actually exactly what the federal government is doing with respect to 6.6 million people a week who are, um, and so I'm not saying we should like pay somebody's whole salary or something, but if you have a service that you have used and you have a relationship with that entity, that business, that person, don't cut it off. I was going to say too, this is almost like we have an ability because of the current moment of technology and the frictionlessness of passing money between individuals. And it doesn't have to be in cash. It can be, and it doesn't have to be in credit cards. Like now we have PayPal and and Venmo and all of these different structures. I was thinking about my stimulus check, which I'm not going to use uh, or save that I'm going to like put out and how I want it. I was like, I wonder what a good way to redistribute this is. And I was like doing some research And then I was like, I'm just going to redistribute this and like giving it away to all of the services and all the restaurants and all of the service people like individually that I would be have spent that money on. What a beautiful thing to do. What? I know. I know what what a beautiful thing to do. (laughs) I know what you should do with your stimulus check. You should get Yorick. You should pay Yorick. I have an 8.30 meeting with Yorick today. You should pay Yorick to do a series of Zoom in lieu yeah. of fun, martial arts training. With Zorik? Yeah. My, Zorik, um, by the way, Corey, Yorick is my, uh, the name of my, my, my striking trainer who I do, I used to do boxing with. Um, and he's like, a, he's a wannabe, like ultimate fighter. Um, and he has funny terms for things. Like he describes our workout sessions as, yo, let's do violence. And like, <laughs> I've seen that like in the middle of the day. Um, and Ben loved this. And so like also that his name was Yorick, which is just like a little bit too perfect. And he wears- Alas, poor. Exactly. Right. He wears this big, he's like this white kid and all of his siblings are, um, are named like Becky and like Susan. <laughs> and like, like Bob. And um, his parents named him Yorick for some reason. He's like the middle child. It makes no sense. But anyways, he, <laughs> I, I have a policy nudge. What's yours, Ben? So I have been spending a lot of time of the last uh, couple of weeks with my younger uh, child who has been uh, doing 3D printing of masks. And he's been trying to perfect a face mask that is actually really useful and pretty comfortable. And I have been struck by the fact that of all the um, information that has been put out, the FDA has an FAQ about 3D printing PPE uh, and the CDC has some information. What they have not put out is a prototype. And- Ah, hmm, Really? Yeah, they have all these warnings about like, you know, here are the reasons why PP, you know, 3D printed PPE may be, you know, not good for hospitals. You have to be careful about this. You have to be careful about that. And it seemed to me if the FDA and the CDC wanted to do something really valuable here and unleash a lot of people to do good, what they would do is they would work with one of the manufacturers to open source a uh, a uh, design and a uh, and a filament uh, spec, like the type of material that you're working with, 
that would actually produce something that hospitals could uh, could could use. There are a lot of people around the country with 3D printers. Uh, there is no shortage of uh, uh, the filament materials, the, including some of the more esoteric rubbery ones. Um, uh, and I don't see why with a small amount of work, the FDA couldn't say, hey, here are a set of specs which you can download and print yourself that are uh, presumptively absent some deficiency in them uh, acceptable for emergency hospital use in a pinch. Um, it's a great idea, Ben. I don't know. I, I think like it's Has actually- Has anyone done that open source? The CDC just like hasn't like signed on to it or like, is there something out there that exists like that? Well, there, there's a lot of designs that are out there and some of them are, by the way, spectacular. Um, like there's this guy in Spain who I think under contract from the Spanish health authorities designed a very simple mask that can hold an N95 filter. Um, but like when I look at it, I say, well, okay, if you showed up with a hundred of these at a hospital, is that actually useful for them? Or do they look at it and say, this is not, you know, uh, FDA approved material. Uh, it's made by somebody in their garage. We don't know what we can do with it. But you could give them away at grocery stores or you could give them away at other types of places to citizens. I mean, that's what we're going to do. We're going to print, yeah. we're going to, we're going to print a bunch of them and we're going to give them away. Um, but I do think with a little bit of federal guidance, you could have people printing stuff that was actually useful in emergency medical situations, which I don't think yeah. you can do now. The trick is you have to have an answer to the question, what are the minimum specs that a hospital right. or an EMT team actually needs? And I don't think anybody other than the federal government can give that. So um, Ernest May, who the great Harvard historian, who was on the 9-11 commission, once told me that the biggest mistake the American government made in the aftermath of 9-11 was not trusting the American people to be partners in everything that needed doing. Um, and That's a beautiful thought. Yeah, that like, Instead of saying the FBI's got this or Homeland Security's got this or that trusting that particularly in free societies, trusting the public to be a partner in whatever needs doing. And Ben, you just gave me a great example of how they could do that. So thank you for that. I mean, I, I think they probably won't because, you know, when the FDA clears some, a medical device, it's like a medical device produced by a particular manufacturer in a particular factory, everything's subject to inspection. And mm -hmm. I understand their instinct to want that level of specificity, but we have a national shortage of masks. Right. And, and I, there is some minimum condition of a mask. As they say in the United States Air Force, if the minimum wasn't good enough, it wouldn't be the minimum. Exactly. Right? <laughs> I want to I produce the, the worst mask I can produce and still be useful. Right. And hey, I have seen somebody pop up on the 
um, on, I think it's the question screen and it's the great Matthew Saville. It is the great Matthew Saville and he has a great question. So Matthew, uh, let's unmute you and have you pose your question. Yeah, hi. Uh, slightly, slightly um, and uh, embarrassing yourself. to be called great. Hello, uh, well, my friend. Hello. Very good to uh, see you, Corey. Um, settled back in the UK. You'd be pleased to know that we've had weather slightly above what you would regard as sub-zero uh, in the past 48 hours. Um, <laughs> it's an so, uninhabitable country, let's be honest. This is an outrage uh, and a slander, but um, <laughs> I think we had that debate uh, a couple of hundred years ago. <laughs> um, <laughs> But uh, yes, yeah, so sorry. I'm a, I'm a sort of a, one of these uh, terrible sort of um, official uh, types over in the UK. Although I've I've he been on a course. He is the excellence uh, that bureaucracy can produce of genuine, deep knowledge focused on urgent public policy problems. Uh, put far more eloquently uh, and indeed uh, more praiseworthily than I could have done. It's a slightly um, it's a slightly political uh, question, but, but hopefully asked neutrally, um, which is, as a sort of an amateur student of, of US politics, um, uh, it's often seen as a fairly sort of cynical, uh, cynical business, um, and that, if you like, personal interests will often trump party loyalty. We've, we've just had a, a couple of years of very interesting British politics where party discipline has broken down. Um, and yet looking over at the US system at the moment, you were talking about the, the, the sort of the norms that, that, that your book talks about the president trampling over. It seems that with each new norm that is crossed or um, interest that is, that is imperiled, actually what happens is the Republican leadership um, doubles down. And that seems counterintuitive. And we've had recent examples where you would have thought you know, Republican core interests about national security and the health of the military um, would really have triggered a response. Um, and yet throughout the hearings, sort of serious, hardcore national security professionals, people with unimpeachable, pardon the pun, credentials like Fiona Hill, were then attacked by Republicans. And the question is, why is this president, who is an outsider in his party, able to instill this kind of weird form of party discipline um, with some very odd exceptions, like how he handles Saudi Arabia. Ben Wittes, that is your wheelhouse, my friend. It's my wheelhouse with the caveat that I have like no idea what the answer is. And um, I find myself, I was bewildered by it in 2016 during the campaign. I was really bewildered by it in 2017 when the president newly installed took a series of actions that um, uh, should have resulted in his removal from office in any sane world and didn't really dent him very much. And I've continued to be bewildered by it ever since. And the only explanation I can give, and it's not honestly a flattering one to myself or people like me, is that a whole lot of people like me thought that the Republican Party was a whole lot of people like Corey Shockey. And because there, so like, I know there's a lot of partisan Democrats who are part, probably listening to this and you're gonna shake your head and say, he's so naive and blah, 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 blah. But, but bear with me for a minute. If, if, if I'm naive on this, I come by it honestly. You know, 
I've worked in this town for more than 25 years now um, in a very nonpartisan fashion. And I've never thought of myself as having a strong political identification. And, you know, when the Bush administration was in power, I tried to do a lot of work with the Bush administration. When the Obama administration was in power, I did a lot of work with the Obama administration. And when you when you craft your policy and political identity that way, you have this working assumption that the parties are represented at some level by the professionals who staff the, uh, the agencies and the congressional offices and the, uh, and the executive branch when those people are in power. And frankly, the law firms in my business, because you know, I do a lot of work with lawyers. And so like if you if your sense of what the Republican Party is, is a whole lot of people who, by the way, with only a very small number of exceptions, turned out to be the never Trump movement. That was my like my conservative circle were all people who I most almost all people who I didn't misjudge actually I got them right. It's just that they turned out to no offense, not be Corey, representative, not represent anybody. <laughs> you know, they were staffers at often at a staffer. You know, remember the president's White House chief of staff is a staffer, right? So that's not a low level position necessarily. They were the people who were staffing in professional contexts very, very important jobs, but they had no political constituency. And Trump pulled the mask off from under that, from, from that. And he revealed that, first of all, that the Republican Party that Corey thought she was a part of didn't exist. And also the Republican professionalism that I thought I was interacting with, it's not that it didn't exist, it's that it had no home. And so that whole group of people is now in this wilderness, which Corey is much better positioned to, to place to describe than I am. Um, but it also revealed that the base of the Republican Party um, was something that the institutional Republican Party had managed to contain for a very long time. And was no longer able to contain. And I think we've seen something like that happen in Europe too, where lots of, you know, whether it's the AFD in Germany or the UKIP or the Brexit movement in Britain, you know, all of these countries have had these kind of base revolts and the Republican party has had one too. So yeah, the people who would rise up and say, um, this is unacceptable about Donald Trump. Yeah, they all did it. And then the world shrugged and went on and it turned out the real Republican Party didn't care. How unfair is that, Corey? I don't think it's unfair. Um, I think we didn't win the argument in 2016 about principled conservatism. And we didn't win it in 2019 either. Um, and 2020 in the impeachment process. Uh, but I don't despair that we may yet win it. Uh, I actually think President Trump caught the crest of a wave of anxiety 
uh, among conservatives about how rapid the rate of change was, how uncertain a future that technology and globalized economics were creating, uh, and people not understanding what it was going to mean for them, what the what their place would be in that kind of future. And we didn't have political leaders who spoke to those issues. And so what you got was the kind of snarling anger of President Trump. I am more optimistic that what we are going to see is a repudiation both by Republicans, but also by the broader voting American public of what President Trump is bringing for the country, both the policies he is enacting, I should say not just both, the policies he is enacting, the people he is appointing, and also the social forces he is unleashing that I think those have to be repudiated for us to get back to a Republican party that I recognize. But I don't lack confidence that the purification of fire is gonna take us there. <laughs> Speaking of your, uh, your finding a silver lining in, <laughs> uh, in, in any situation, <laughs> I want the record to reflect that you just referred to a purification of fire as a, by fire as a good thing. <laughs> I come from the wildfire country in Northern California. <laughs> I, was say, I was like, that's like, you know, you can sterilize a blade very easily <laughs> on a flame, Ben. <laughs> very true. Um, Carrie, or Corey, sorry. Corey, I like, am so glad that you were here with us today. Like, this has been amazing. You are amazing. And this is like, I, don't, I just, I've learned so much and it's been kind of just a lovely episode. I was just telling Ben um, in a private chat to figure out who was gonna wrap up. I was like, I start each of these kind of episodes and I don't know what to expect. And I'm a little bit tired and I'm like a little bit down about my day. And I end in such a more positive, and happier place, but I don't think that's ever been quite as true as it was today. So thank you so much. You were a huge part of that. Thank you so much for coming on. It was a great privilege to have this conversation with you both, Kate and Ben. Thank you for having me. Thank um, you. And so I'm, what do we have for tomorrow, Kate? Yeah, we have, so tomorrow we have two ER doctors that are going to be joining us from either coast, one in Virginia and one in California, hopefully, um, that are gonna be talking about what it's been like to be on the front lines of the coronavirus um, as an emergency room doctor. Um, and I think that that's gonna be fascinating, not only in how, um, how they're seeing the coronavirus in front of them, but what this has meant globally for being a doctor in terms of the benefits and how the healthcare system is structured uh, and I think it's going to be a fun conversation. Maybe we can ask them about masks. Oh yeah, I would love to do that. We should totally ask them about masks. Yeah. So before we go, <laughs> I want to say a word about my shirt. Um, so the preamble I, to the Constitution. Well, it's actually uh, I'm going to tilt it down. It's uh, we the people care, and. Wow. Uh, I was uh, giving a book talk with Susan in New York at Barnes and Nobles, and this lovely uh, gentleman uh, walked up to me and he uh, said that he had been very offended 
by Melania Trump's uh, wearing that vest or that jacket that said, I really don't care, do you? And so he had designed this uh, We the People Care shirt in That's response. That's lovely. And he, um, he gave them to people and asked me whether I would take one. And so I, uh, I very gratefully did. I was very moved by it. And I thought, uh, you know, what, a, what better day to wear it and what better place to wear it than on in lieu of fun. Uh, <laughs> so uh, shout out to the designer of the We the People Care shirt. Yay! And, uh, we will Way be to make me finally cry. Uh, it took 28 days. <laughs> we will that be was back. <laughs> We will be back tomorrow at five. And remember, if you can't have fun in lieu of fun, you can still have us. <laughs> Bye, guys. See you later. Thanks, Corey. Bye.